The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. The overarching theme of what we're going to look at today is the danger of success. The danger of success. We've seen so far, uh, really, um, Gideon, who is this reluctant farmer and uh, fearful guy, and he's there and he's behind the wine press threshing the wheat uh, lest he be found. Uh, he's reluctant to uh, listen to God's call as he's nervous and feeling overwhelmed by uh, that call. Isn't the calling of God overwhelming to you? That God would seek to use you in any way and God would call you? I hope that you're listening and heeding to His call in your life from His Word and by, your spirit, by His Spirit. But as we look at uh, Gideon's life, we see reluctance and then we see uh, kind of uh, him moving a little bit forward. He gives God some tests, quote-unquote, as he uh, tries to discern what is the will of God for his life. And uh, after doing so, we see a changed Gideon as he meets with God and the angel of the Lord shows up and he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. But even in that, he feels unable to do the sacrifice. The angel of the Lord assists him in that process that's consumed there upon the rock. And then he's beginning to assemble an army. And then God, what does he do? He continues to reduce him, reduce him, reduce him by reducing the army. The Bible says, lest that Israel should boast against God that uh, they had to reduce the army down to 300. And so Gideon uh, is still fearful. And then God assures his heart as we looked at next week. God is, uh, last week, God is the great reassurer. And he brings assurance to us. And how God did that in Gideon's life is amazing. And God brought it through His Word and a reminder of it. He brought it through Him listening to other people and the circumstances that He faced. And so God assures us as well. And I'm thankful for assurance. As Christians, we all face doubt. And if you didn't hear that message, I hope you'll go back and listen to that because I think sometimes we think that doubt is abnormal to the Christian life when really it is very normal to us as we're human beings and we falter and fail and we deal with doubts and we deal with fears. And that's just reality, isn't it? Uh, But today, we see Gideon after victory. They have pursued the Midianites. They have overcome the kings. They have taken the, taken the, uh, the spoils that are there. And we see Gideon, especially in the beginning of chapter 8, kind of dealing with some of the dangers of success and the dangers of victory. And so with the, um, previous judges, once God had rescued his people from oppression to idols and to enemies. The only further detail given to us is the length of peace that they enjoyed under that judge's leadership. But with Gideon, it's not so simple. Israel is on a general down spiral, and we'll see two things. First, uh, in the career of Gideon, that people begin to backslide during his leadership rather than after uh, the rule of a judge savior, and there are deep flaws in Gideon's life and in his rule. And so rather than kind of summing up Gideon's post-victory leadership in a verse, the the writer here, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us two books to kind of conclude Gideon's life. And uh, as we read towards the end, it doesn't end very well for him. It doesn't go very well. And so the first thing that we're going to look at today is a lesson that we need to learn. A lesson that we need to learn. The Bible tells us that these things are written for our learning. These things are written so that we might understand 
uh, that God is teaching us something through His Word. And sometimes, how many have learned this? It's an example not to follow. It's an example of of a failure that we need to look to and understand in our own life. In the beginning of chapter 8, Ephraim is one of the most powerful tribes in Israel, and Gideon has called them out to help him to cut off the Midianites. They're now fleeing. They're running away after that kind of confusing battle of self-destruction there in the valley as they're confused and thinking that Gideon has overtaken them. But the Ephraimites here are unhappy with Gideon. In verse number 1, notice what they said. The men of Ephraim said unto him, Why hast thou served us thus? And and that thou calls us not when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites. And they chided him, the Bible says here, sharply. And they're angry with Gideon because he didn't include them. And we can kind of see the reason why. The reason is not because they're angry for uh, God being uh, somehow um, uh, uh, you know, gone up against and, just, and, and attacked by uh, the Midianites, they're more concerned about the fact that they weren't there when the, when the winning happened. Where, hey, where were we at? We, we didn't get to take part in this great victory. Why didn't you invite us? Isn't it interesting who wants to be invited to the party after you win? You know, after success happens, after victory happens, it's amazing, the bandwagon, right, that happens after that. And Ephraim, although they're strong, when he called for people to come, uh, they're, they're not answering the call, and here they are, they're now saying, we, we could have been a part of this, we could have, you know, somehow, and they're, they're so angry with him, and their criticism here is born of frustration, having missed out on the glory, right, because that's really what they want, the glory of the victory. Remember, that's what God said in the beginning, lest Israel boast against me. And so God left them out on purpose because they were going to be part of that boasting in themselves of what was going to go on. And so so this criticism here reveals two truths. First, that God was absolutely correct to say that Israel would want to boast against him and glorify themselves in victory. So this confirms that, that God is, God is, he's right, he's correct. Isn't he always right and always correct? But I'm glad that he affirms that to us because sometimes we're slow to learn and we're slow to understand how right God is. And so Ephraim also, uh, the second thing it reveals to us about them is they would not have respected or deferred to God's chosen judge in Gideon. They wouldn't have followed God's leader anyway. They're angry with him, and what they're saying to him is out of line. Gideon's response to them is, it's respectful, it's diplomatic. Look at verse 2. He points out how much more powerful their tribe is than his clan, that they, unlike him, have already captured and killed two Midianite leaders. Verse 3, Ephraim's you know, kind of snub, scolding, must have been hard to take, but he, he holds his tongue, and w- with their desire for glory and praise, satisfied, because Gideon kind of strokes their ego here, they're like, okay, well, we're all right now, you know, that you've told us how great we are, how wonderful we are, and, you know, he understands kind of uh, what he needs to say to kind of get them off their back. And we might want to, at this point, congratulate Gideon and praise him for his humility and peacefulness, but the next section shows us something about the heart of Gideon and the motive of his actions that reveal to us that it's not Gideon's humility that's speaking here, but rather the fact that he knows he cannot win this battle against them. He's exhausted from the pursuit of the Midianite kings. Verse 4, Zeba and Zalmunna. Gideon asked the people of the town, sucketh to feed his men because they're so tired. He's, he, not, he doesn't want to have a fight with anybody at this point. They're so exhausted from this battle. And uh, here, verse number 5, these people, we're going to get somewhere, but I just want you to see this. They refuse to help 
The Ephraimites, they show a complete lack of gratitude to, to Gideon for defeating their enemy. Essentially, they say to him, do you have these Midianite kings in your hands? And if you don't have them, if you haven't destroyed them, we're not going to help you because if you don't capture the kings, they're going to come back. And if we helped you, we're, we're on the wrong side of this. We want them, uh, we don't want repercussions for aiding and abetting the enemy here. And if Midian's going to win, then we're on Midian's side. And if you're going to win, we're on your side. But we're not helping you until you completely annihilate all of the rulers and the kings here in Midianite. And so what happens with Gideon? He gets angry. Uh, he's upset at what is happening here. I think that's a natural response. They know if Gideon isn't able to catch and kill the leaders, then the Midianites will regroup and return. Remember the size army that they're dealing with. They're like grasshoppers. I mean, they're, they, have, they have annihilated, they have completely uh, had victory over uh, the Israelites for the last eight years. This is not an easy enemy to overcome. And so they've won the battle here, but maybe not the war. And Gideon answers Succoth and Peniel very differently from Ephraim. In verses 7 and 9, he says, When the Lord's given Zeba and Zaluma into my hand, get, get what he says now, I'm going to come back and I'm going to tear your flesh. And I'm going to, uh, with, with desert thorns and with briars, in other words, when I return in triumph, I'm going to tear down this tower, he says. He says, wait till I come back. You're not going to want to see me when I come back. I mean, I'm going, to be, uh, I'm going to be somebody that is angry, and I'm going to have vengeance on the fact that you wouldn't feed us, that you wouldn't aid us, and you wouldn't assist us. And this reveals here that Gideon's diplomacy regarding Ephraim was not because he didn't want to strike at them, but because he could not. And it reveals that despite God making sure that the victory was so miraculous that everyone should have seen that it was given by God and not earned by Gideon, Gideon himself has forgotten the lesson of the 300. He has forgotten himself who the glory goes to. And sometimes I think the truth is, when we have a measure of success, we often feel deserved of admiration. That's the danger of success, isn't it? We have success, and so because we've succeeded in some way in our lives, we feel that we should be admired for our successes. Gideon's upset because he says, you're not thankful, you're ungrateful for what I've done for you. He doesn't say, for what God has done for you. He's saying, for what I've done. You're ungrateful. You're not, you're not giving me what I deserve. You should be listening to me. You should be following me. You should be obeying me. And maybe he had kind of a right point, but he surely had a wrong motive in this. And his heart, can you feel his heart as you read this, getting bitter? How many know that bitterness is a dangerous, dangerous thing? He's getting bitter. He's becoming embittered in his heart. The Bible says that the root of bitterness that springs up in us, it troubles us, that many people are defiled by bitterness. You'd think that a lot of sins would defile a lot of people. I think pride is on the top of the list of things that defile us. But as we look at what happens, bitterness is kind of born of pride, isn't it? Because bitterness comes from a prideful position. It's, I deserve something I didn't get, and so I'm upset, and I'm bitter, and I'm holding a grudge as a result of that. Listen, you can get bitter at anybody. You can, get bitter, uh, you can get bitter against your own family, can't you? You can get bitter against the people that you love. You can, husbands and wives, you can get bitter against each other. Hey, church family, we can get embittered towards one another. I can get embittered towards you. You can get embittered towards me. Bitterness is a, is a terrible thing. And there's a lesson here because when we have a measure of success, we often feel that we should be admired. But here's the truth. 
If success comes from God, then who should be admired and praised? Should it not be the Lord alone and not ourselves? But sometimes we feel like we somehow took part in it in some way. Well, I don't want to take all of the glory. I just want to get some of the glory. How many know that that is dangerous? God says we deserve none of the glory. He shares His glory with no one. We didn't come today to gather to partly praise God and partly praise ourselves. We didn't come today to partly... Come on, because sometimes the gathering of the church can feel like a little bit of a self-pat on the back. Well, I'm in church. You know, I'm here, and I'm looking around the room making sure I note everyone that's not here. Where's so-and-so? You know, it may be your first time here in a little bit, and you may not know what the struggles or someone's going through, and we often feel somewhat when we do something that's good that we deserve some praise, and we deserve some admiration. If any of us is breathing today, may the Lord be praised. If we have breath, let us praise the Lord. And, and we deserve no admiration. We deserve no glory. You can see it. Bitterness is creeping up in the heart of Gideon. Eventually, as we read, it's going to destroy him. And not only him, but it's going to destroy his house. It's going to destroy his family. We're going to see destruction that comes from a man who has a semblance of victory, success in his life, who maybe didn't start off so strong, but in the middle, really strong. And we see these flaws in these judges. And can we remember the overall theme? Lest we go back to this kind of mindset in preaching that the whole point of preaching through the Old Testament is saying, be like so-and-so. The whole point of us going to these books is saying, all of us fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The best of the best of us fail and fall. And we ultimately need a Savior who cannot die whose reign will not end, and whose peace is everlasting. And that's what we need. And all of this points to the coming Messiah, and not to Gideon. But Gideon, you know what he's starting to do? He's starting to point to himself. I'm the reason why Israel has been delivered from Midian. I'm the reason. And sometimes, listen, I've done this. Well, it's not you know, necessarily all of what I've done, but I obeyed, right? I mean, I did what God said, so I should get some credit for that. No. If any of us have obeyed God, if any of us have submitted to God, may the Lord be praised because it is by His grace that our stubbornness and disobedience has been overcome. Come on. We are rebellious at our nature. We're not submissive to the Lord. We are desirous. Listen, there's something in us, in our flesh that dwelleth. There's no good thing in our flesh. And let me tell you, in all of us, there's an ego that's there waiting to rear its ugly head and take some of the credit even from God. And Gideon is not untouchable in this measure. So here he, he is, he's uh, expecting to be given glory for his achievements, which in, he's forgetting where, in fact, your God's achieve, achievements. Didn't all of Israel's failures begin with forgetting? They forgot. They forgot who brought them out. God has to remind them over and over again. So when Succoth and Peniel fail to trust that Gideon will triumph over Midian, he doesn't say to them, yes, I know it's hard to believe we can beat them, but God in His grace is using us to win the battle, so don't trust my strength, but trust in the Lord. Instead, Gideon says, how dare you doubt me? I will show you my power, my authority, my strength when I get back, and you will learn to respect me and to obey me. That's his response. Listen, parents, have you ever caught yourself in that position? You're in a position of authority? And instead of 
pointing your children to God in obedience and submission to Him. Instead, you're more upset that you feel disrespected or you feel embarrassed in something that your leadership has been challenged. And I understand children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. But I also understand fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And it's a pointing to Christ and to God and to the gospel that brings a change in their lives. Sometimes we stand in our positions and we do so in the wrong spirit and we rob ourselves of the success that God brings into our lives, which really is a blessing because we're deserved of no success. And that brings us kind of to the second point that I want to make here. When we are given a position of power, we need to protect our hearts from using it to lift up ourselves and abuse others. Listen, if God puts you in a position of leadership, every single one of us in some way or other is in some leadership position. If God gives you, by His grace, some kind of headship or some kind of authority, the danger is that you will somehow be drawn into lifting yourself up, promoting yourself and then abusing others as a result. Because how many know that when you lift yourself up, you will, as a reaction response, end up abusing people that are underneath you? Our job is not to lift ourselves up. Our job is to lift up the Lord. Are you with me? Because this is hard for us. It's, It's hard for me to hear. Listen, in positions of leadership, I think you would agree if I'd say to you that it's not my job as a pastor to lift myself up, and it's wrong for me to abuse. Correct? Well, isn't it your job as a husband not to lift yourself up and it's wrong for you to abuse? Isn't it your job as a wife not to lift yourself up and it's wrong for you to abuse? Isn't it your job as a boss not to lift up yourself and it's wrong for you to abuse? Because sometimes we excuse our abusive behavior because we give the caveat of, well, I'm in charge. Have you ever done that? Excused your abusive behavior because you're in charge? As soon as your ego gets hit, right, you stick up your chest, you puff it up, I'm the boss. I'm in charge. Listen, I know that if I have to get up this morning and say, I'm the pastor and I'm in charge, well, we're going to have a problem. Come on. Who's in charge? The chief shepherd that's going to appear one day. His name is Jesus. He's the head of the church, and there's nobody else. Has he placed him in a position of leadership and calling? Yes, he has. But does that mean that I'm supposed to lift myself up? No, God lifts up men. God lifts up leadership. And the desire of leadership should be to bring glory to God through that leadership. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be strong leaders. Are you with me? Because I think what has been born in the pendulum swing of abusive leadership is weak and soft leadership. We should be confident. Do we see Gideon acting confidently as God assures him and calls him to do something. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that confidence, but confidence that comes from God does not bring abuse of people that are under us. But confidence in my flesh will bring abuse of people that are under me. Because we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think rather than to think soberly. Isn't that what God says? Should any of us think, church, more highly of ourselves than we think of each other? Think about the leadership, the servant leadership of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. But what did Jesus do? He stooped down and he washed his disciples' feet. He served them. 
He died for his church. He sacrificed himself. He gave himself a ransom. Notice the Bible says to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what is that mind? Who made himself of no reputation. It took on the form of a servant. and was found fashioned as a man. He, he became flesh. Why? So that he, he could show us in his humility that God could only do what we needed in salvation. He was the only one that could do that for us. You know, as we look at what Gideon says here, you know, he, he returns again from routing a far force with his 300 men, verses 10 through 12. He captures Zeba, captures Zalmanah. Gideon is as good as his word. He seizes a member of his own people, Israel, verse 14, discovers the names of the elders of Succoth, Reminds them in verse number 15, you taunted me. I'm going to get back at you now. This is the bitterness. It's coming out. He's using his power. He taught the men of Succoth a lesson by verse 16, punishing them with desert thorns and briars. Remember, that's exactly what he said he was going to do. He drugged them through desert. I don't know if you want to think about what kind of death this was, but this was no kind of soft we're talking about God led Gideon to stand on the, up on the mountain with a pitcher and a light and a horn. And now look what Gideon's doing. Look what Gideon's doing. Gideon didn't have to do anything to get the victory except for obey God. And notice how he's treating the people that are around him and the people that are under him. In Peniel, things are even worse. Verse 17, he pulls down the tower. He kills the men of the town. Does this sound like a hero anymore to you? Isn't it amazing how ugly pride makes us? How great the fall that pride brings to our lives. It doesn't matter the, the past successes that we have. What matters is the present pride that's in our life as a result of those successes. Are you with me? None of us can boast ourselves in our past successes. Even as believers, we've got to be careful with our testimonies. Because sometimes we glorify ourselves, don't we? Well, almost like presenting ourselves like we were worth saving or that our lives were so terrible and so horrible that somehow it's a contest of who has been saved in a greater way. Well, I have such a great story. I used to be intimidated as a young man who got saved at a very young age listening to people who were saved from such horrible vices in their lives. I used to think, the salvation that God's brought to my life is, is not as great as the salvation that he's brought to their life because there hasn't been as a great change in my life. I mean, what did I stop doing? I mean, really, at eight years old, I mean, there wasn't really a whole lot of major vice. I didn't, you know, I didn't stop doing drugs. You know, I didn't, I didn't put away that. I, you know, I didn't have to, you know, get my past prison uh, sentences exonerated, all those things. So did God, was God's salvation in my life somehow less needed? I was dead in my trespasses and sins as a child. I was on my way to a Christless eternity in hell with no guarantee of another breath or another day. And had I perished, I would have gone to the same eternal damnation in hell as any other person, no matter what they had done, because I was utterly in sin from the moment I was born into this world. And the salvation that God brought to my heart and to my life was just as great. It is not a contest amongst us 
who is greater in the kingdom of God and who has come from some kind of greater background. There's the danger of success and a lesson we need to learn. The second thing I want to point out is a warning we need to watch. A warning we need to watch. Gideon's need for respect and honor and his violent, bitter rage when he fails to be given what he thinks he deserves shows that his success in battle has been the worst thing for him. He has become addicted to and dependent upon his success. There's a terrible spiritual danger involved in receiving any blessing. Sometimes, listen, we live for the blessing. We live for it. Sometimes we linger in the blessings. And come on, a lot of us say some of the things that we have are God's blessings, when really I don't know that God can be credited for some of the things that we call blessed. Success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. Come on, in all of us, why is it so hard for people to fathom this? You cannot save yourself that salvation is not of good works, lest any man should boast. Because that is offensive. Are you with me? This is the way the gospel offends us. It says, it doesn't matter how good you try to be. Listen, Jesus was very offensive when he spoke to the religious or those that believe themselves to be righteous and somehow through their behaviors, their religious practices. It wasn't hard for sinners to come to the Lord. They were halfway there because they knew they were sinners. Are you with me? You know what was hard? It was hard for the rich man. It was hard for the religious man. It was hard for men like Nicodemus, you know, who was a ruler of the Jews, who had known the Scriptures. Listen, sometimes the hardest people to come to the Lord, and I want you to listen to this because there's some of you that have been in church your entire life, and some of you will be the hardest people to bring to Christ. That may sound shocking to you, but some of you, you have grown up with the Word of God, You have known what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to act. And you have somehow believed that you're saved as a result of those things. And can I tell you something? You're not saved through any of your good works. You're not saved because you grew up in church and went to Sunday school from when you're young. You're not born again because you know and have heard the word of God. You're only born of the spirit of God when you've fallen under conviction of your own need for Christ and your own sinfulness. Listen, the hardest people to bring into the kingdom of God are religious people. And sometimes, listen, they can be found even, sometimes I think what we say, well, religious people are the people that aren't here. Now, there's a lot of religious people here. Plenty of us have have looked to, at some point in our lives, religion as being the reason why we're born again, why we're believers. And that is just as much a false gospel as any. We cannot trust in ourselves. A knowledge and familiarity with the Word of God is not what saves us. And that from a child that has known the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make the wise unto salvation, but notice, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Hopefully, your learning of the Scriptures has turned you to believing and trusting only in Christ for your salvation. But sometimes the unintended part of what happens to those that are religious is they somehow believe in themselves in some way. Well, I've done good or I've done well. I've tried hard and I've been faithful and 
And you know what your relationship with God is? It's trying harder. It's trying to be better. It's trying to stop this and trying to stop that. But it's never resting in the salvation that you have received through Christ alone. And that is dangerous. And this is the danger of success. Success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. It is so difficult to talk to someone who believes in some way that they take part in their own salvation. Some of you know because you were there at one point in your life. What do you mean? I'm not a terrible person. I'm, I'm a good person. I try to help people. I, you know, I give and I serve and I'm in a community. I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those troublemakers. I'm not as bad as you know, some of these people. I mean, why would God send me to hell? Because people go to hell because they've rejected the gospel. But they go to hell because they have not been saved. They have not been born again in the kingdom of God. The truth is, is all of us are born lost. We're born without God. And none of us are born with God. None of us have been saved from when we were young. And and when I say young, I know children, listen, children can come into the kingdom of God. But it's by faith, isn't it? It's by faith that they enter into the kingdom of God. And as soon as we leave the faith life, we're in trouble. God-given victory can easily be used to confirm the belief that, in fact, we have earned blessing for ourselves and should receive the praise and glory for that success. Let me give you this example, and maybe this will help. Imagine a man who works extremely hard at his job because he needs to prove to himself through financial success. What is the worst thing that can happen to him? The obvious answer is career failure. Of course, someone who's basing their happiness and identity on their work will be devastated by career failure. But at least through the failure, he may stop idolizing career advancement. He may realize that status and money could never fulfill him. No, the worst thing that can happen to him is career success. Success will only confirm his belief that he can fulfill himself through the control of his own life, and he will be more a slave to success and money than if he had failed He will feel proud and superior to others. He will expect deference and bowing and scraping from others and admiration and even eventually demand it. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is not failure, it's success. Some of you could give a testimony this morning and say, the best thing that's ever happened to me is failure. The best thing that's ever happened to me is I lost the job. The best thing that ever happened to me is I lost this or I lost that. Some of us could say, like Paul, the best thing that ever happened to me is I got sick. That doesn't compute in this world, though, does it? Because the only thing that's good in this world is us getting what we want. The only thing good in this world is the measure of success that that they are uh, propagating is the only success. But can I remind you, the measuring stick which Israel failed to measure up to, is Joshua's measuring stick of good success. Joshua, at the end of the book of Joshua, says, let me remind you, before we even go into Judges, that the measuring stick for success is obedience to the Lord, obedience to His Word. Listen, the worst thing that can happen to us when we're disobeying God is that we succeed when we disobey God. Because some of us will walk away and say, well, it didn't work out like I thought. I thought, come on, 
when we're disobeying, sometimes we're waiting for the, the failure. We're waiting for the lightning strike. We're waiting for something bad to happen to us. And sometimes, you know what God does? You know what judgment is sometimes in the life, our lives, is we get what we want. But you know what we find? It doesn't bring peace to us. It doesn't bring fulfillment to us. It doesn't give us the identity that we need. Back in chapter 7, verse 15, when Gideon knew his own weakness and understood that victory could only be by grace, what did he do in verse 15? He worshipped God. Come on, all of us admired that Gideon. The Gideon that acknowledged, I'm weak, he's strong, I can't, he can. And what did that do in his life? He worshipped God. You know what's keeping you and I from worshiping God? Even as we sit here in church, this is a worship service. But what will keep us from worshiping God is believing that we somehow deserve something from God. That we deserve some kind of glory or admiration or some kind of success. Or that blessing, come on, prosperity gospel is destroying the true gospel. And by the way, it can't destroy the true gospel, but it is drawing a lot of lines in the United States of America. And the prosperity gospel, by the way, is being spread to places third world countries in this world and they're believing it too because you know why because they're impoverished and they need to believe that somehow hope is and somehow God's blessing is them somehow measuring up to the rich people that are in this world can I tell you if you have Jesus you are never more richer if you have Jesus you are never more richer there is nothing in this world that can compare to the possession of Christ. As he said to Abraham, it's not your stuff, Abraham. I am your exceeding and great reward. And when you forget that, you'll lose everything. Job lost it all and he was able to say, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But he worshipped when he lost and he worshipped when he won. And that's who we need to be. We need to remember that we are saved by grace when we fail. But we need to remember it much more when we succeed. Because when we have a measure of success, sometimes we don't think it's grace. Sometimes we think it's earned. Sometimes we think that we deserved that. Listen, I'm all for giving honor where honors due. I'm all for, listen, if you work hard, I think there ought to be, there's, the Bible promises reward in your labor. I'm, I'm not contradicting whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. But I am saying this, you don't deserve, you don't deserve to reap. I don't deserve to reap good things from God. May we come away and say every good and perfect gift comes from above. That's just practical Christianity, isn't it? You know, if you acknowledge that everything good in your life has come from God, you will have no problem giving back to God. You know why people have problems with giving? Because they believe they earned it. They believe that somehow what they have, it's theirs. Everything you and I own is God's. He has given it to us, and we are just managers. We're just stewards. And can I tell you, managers, can I tell you, stewards, he's coming back. And he's bringing his reward with him, but who he's going, coming to reward are those that have stewarded the things, the possessions that he, they, he has entrusted them with to the glory of God and not to self-promotion and not to raise ourselves up. We see Gideon stuck in this trap. 
We need to remember that we're saved by grace when we fail, but we need to remember it much more when we succeed. Then lastly today, as we look at this, the last point, a failure we need to forsake. A failure we need to forsake. Now Israel asked Gideon to be a king in verse number 22. They say, rule over us, you, your son, your grandson. They want to set up a successive line of monarchy from Gideon. Gideon, be our king and your son and your grandson. Just as Gideon has begun to forget who it was who gave victory over Midian, so so, uh, have the rest of Israel. They've forgotten. They're, They're not saying, God's our king. Remember what happened with the prior judges? None of them became kings. They all just pointed back to God and the, and the nation had rest. And Israel wants to reject God's method of ruling his people. A judge is anointed by him to deal with the crisis at hand to lead the people back to living under his rule. But if Gideon says yes, Israel will have a king appointed by humans and rule will pass on down to others automatically. And so Gideon discerns kind of the underlying motive that's here. Asking for a king. They want to be ruled, verse 23, by a man, not by God. And with a king, they would not need to look to God for salvation and wait for him to send them a savior. The desire for a king is actually another elf effort here of self-salvation. They want to control their own future. They want to be, in essence, like the other kings they've overcome and destroyed. By the way, you'd think they would learn from those wicked kings that they had just taken the lives of, that these kings, if they set up a king, they're going to bring corruption to their own selves in in doing that. And notice what Gideon says. He says, I'm not going to rule over you. The the Lord will rule over you. They don't need a king to obey. They need to obey the king they have. Sadly, verse 23 is really the last time that Gideon remembers who God is and who he is. And ironically and tragically, he almost immediately contradicts his words, doesn't he? He says, no, I won't be your king. Now pay me tribute. No, I won't be your king, but give me a king's ransom. I want deference. I want respect. I want to be honored. I want to be followed. And they pay him, and if you do the math, it would be in weight of gold today, measuring up to about a million dollars in gold, they give to him of all the spoils. They lay out the garments. This is, by the way, what you would do for a king. They gave him the king's ransom. They gave him the king's portion. He said, I won't be the king. I'm not going to be the king, guys. You don't want me to be the king. But he began to act like a king. He began to treat them like as if he was the king. He began to take from them as a king would take from them because he deserved He said, look, what I've done for you, I've delivered you. No, who delivered them? God delivered them, not Gideon. Gideon should have said, I don't want any of this filthy lucre. I don't want any of this. I don't want any of this. I just want what God gives. I want to be who God wants me to be. But instead, he swallows this temptation hook, line, and sinker. We have to watch out, don't we? Because what happens in our lives when we believe ourselves to be deserved of glory We also believe ourselves to be deserved of other things that somewhat could destroy us. I'll remind you today that it's not money that is the root of all evil, but the love of money is. The love of money is. And I'm not judging you today whether or not you're in love with money, but I think in your heart you know. Do you love God or do you love your possessions? Do you love money? 
If you'll do something for money, but you won't do something from God, who, for God, who is your God? There are a lot of people that won't obey God in the area of their family, in the area of being part of a local New Testament church, in the area of serving God. And the reason why is the almighty dollar. They won't obey God. They won't trust God. They don't give like, like God says, to graciously give. And the reason why is because they believe that it's theirs and, you know, I'm just going to tip God every once in a while here or there, you know, just to appease Him. Listen, God is worthy of all that we have in worship and praise to Him. Can I remind you that God wants your heart? When we live by our own wisdom instead of God's, we will make terrible decisions that compromise our peace. Can I draw your attention to what the Bible says about the peace that Israel is enjoying? The Bible doesn't say the country was in peace. It says it was in quietness. It's interesting that God changes, uses a different word with a different meaning here, and that's why there's a different word placed here. And the reason for that is that there's a compromised peace that is brought. Can I, can I share something with you? You can bring quietness to your own life, but you can't bring peace. When we're in control, we may be able to control quietness. So come on, some of us have said, what do you want for your birthday? Peace and quiet, right? I'll be peace if you be quiet. That's the desire of us, right? We want, sometimes we just want things to be quieted around us. We want everything to be quiet. Listen, you can go to geographical locations and create quietness for yourself, but you cannot put peace in your heart. Peace is not a geographic location. It's not a paradise. Peace is not the absence of trouble. It's the presence of God. Sometimes that's what we think. Well, I need to have no trouble in my life. No, you need the peace of God that will bring peace to you in the middle of your trouble. Jesus could bring peace to the disciples by calming the storm or by allowing the storm to continue. The greater lesson they learned is that they could have the peace of God in the middle of the storm with the storm continuing to rage on. Isn't that what we need to learn today? Some of us, we've mistaken quietness with peace. And in our own wisdom, we've, we've, we've kind of quieted even the voice of God. We don't want to hear His voice either because God's voice, when I'm in quietness and not peace, God's voice troubles my quietness. Can God trouble us? Convict us? Discomfort us? Isn't that somewhat what the job is of the preaching of the Word of God? It is to discomfort you in some way. Come on, are you with me? I mean, we want heap to ourselves teachers having itching ears. We only hear good things. We only hear comfortable things. We only hear peace things. We only hear about love and we only hear mercy and success. We don't want to hear anything about what we shouldn't do, what we should do. We don't want to hear anything about sin or the presence of sin in our life. Listen, sin destroys, it kills. Do you want a doctor that will say to you that everything's all right when it's wrong? Or do you want someone that's going to come to you and tell you the truth? Can I remind you today, it's not my truth, and it's not your truth. We don't control it. We just give it. 
It's our job to be accountable to it and to obey it. And sometimes God makes us uncomfortable, doesn't he? And he stirs our hearts about the things that are in our lives that are causing chaos and causing a lack of peace. And we just want to be quiet. We plug our ears. Listen, you can get quiet by plugging your ears. Sometimes people plug their ears. They don't read their Bible. They close their Bible on Sunday, never open again to next Sunday. They know what they need to do. Come on. Some of us, we know what we need to do in our marriage, and we're not doing it. We're disobeying God, and we're praying that God gives us peace. Are you with me? Isn't that how foolish we are in our own wisdom? We think we can get the reward of obedience without obeying. We think, God, God bless me, God bless me, God bless me. God says, I want to bless you. Obey me. Do what I say. It is what facilitates blessing in your life. Trust me and obey me. Faith and obedience brings peace. And that's the declarative of of every part of these texts that God is saying, you have not obeyed my voice. You have forgotten me. And what were they doing all along? They want to stick their fingers in their ears. They don't want to listen to the word of God. God sent them a sermon before he ever sent them a savior. And they didn't listen to the sermon. And now they're in the midst of the judgment of that. And you know what's really sad is? When we read the rest of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, we don't hear much about God. And it's like God says, you want quietness? I'll be quiet. Have your way. Has that ever happened to you in your life? The scariest thing that could ever happen to us is that God says, I'll be quiet and I'm going to stop speaking into your life. That ought to make us tremble. When we want quietness so bad, instead of peace, that we will silence God. I said this before, but some of us have a spiritual DNR in our life. We're like, God, do not resuscitate me. I'm happy to be dead. I don't want to be revived. Revival is a return to natural operation. When someone is revived, they're brought back to normal breathing. They're back, brought back to normal living. Listen, we look at revival as some sensational thing happening where the church gets a lot of blessings, the church gets a lot of possessions, the church gets a lot of stuff, and there, a lot of miracles happen. Revival is when the church gets back to the Word of God. When the church says, we want God more than we want stuff. And we want God more than we want our success. And we want God more than we want anything. Some of us, we have a spiritual DNR. We're saying, God, don't resuscitate me. I don't want to, I don't want, I want quiet in my life. Listen, you need to make a choice today. Do you want peace or do you want quiet? Peace will keep you through the greatest struggles and troubles in life. Quiet will not keep you through any of them. Lastly today, when we set ourselves up to receive worship, we will open our hearts to all the other kinds of vices. I've got to be done today, but can I call and draw your attention to what happens here to Gideon? He takes the gold that's given, and we have an Aaron at the foot of the mountain moment, golden calf moment, don't we? What does he do? Melts down the gold, creates an ephod, Can I remind you what an ephod is? An ephod is what part of the priest's garments. Gideon's not a priest. In the ephod was the Urim and Thummim, which is what they would use to discern the will of God. It it stood for, in Israel, the presence of God. And we know this is what he's doing 
Because he starts to say, no, don't worship where God says, where the Levites are, where the tabernacle is. Worship at my home. I've got the ephod. I've got the ability to discern. He makes his own. It's like the person says, I don't like God's plan for the church. I'm going to go make my own. I don't like God's calling. I don't like what God set up. I don't, I'm just going to go make my own. I'm going to worship where I want to worship. I'm going to do what I want to do. And he begins to set himself up known, not only as king, but as prophet and priest. He's now wearing the priestly garments. Is he qualified? No. Did God say you're going to be king? No. Did God say you're going to be priest? No. God said you're going to be judge. And you know what he began to do? He began to take the role that could only be fulfilled. Who, who held the roles of prophet, priest, and king alone? Jesus. He's a false Messiah now here at the end of the text. Worship here. Worship at my place. This should not be happening. This is against what God is saying to do. And as a result, what happens? Well, Gideon starts to take a lot of wives. Where did he learn that? Pagan, the pagan people that are around him. By the end of the day, he has Abimelech, which really stands for one who is not obedient to God. I mean, it's just like, it's amazing. Here, his own children are a testament of his bad decisions. He has so many children because he has so many wives, but here he has a child from his concubine. And can I remind you that while the Bible gives a narrative about polygamy, the Bible never gives a stamp of approval on polygamy. Are you with me? He may be giving the narrative of what they're doing, but they didn't learn that from God. How many wives did God give to Adam? One. Some of you are like, that's all I can handle anyway. I'm glad it's not legal. You know, if we were in his position, listen, some of, we, would, we would take, listen, he starts to make some very bad decisions which have some very, very big consequences. It's because when we set ourselves up to receive worship, we'll open our hearts to all other kinds of vices. The 19th century preacher C.H. Spurgeon once warned younger Christians. He said, don't go into the ministry to save your soul. He knew it's very easy for us to use church leadership not to serve and to honor God, but to win influence and honor for ourselves. Of course, Gideon, like we, still say that God is king, but we want people to look for us to guidance, for answers, for salvation. Can I, can I tell you something this morning? There are no, there are no pastors that have, hold the ephod, the Urim and Thum. I have some people say, Pastor, what color car should I buy? Whatever kind of car you want. Some people are so, like, they're addicted to counseling. Like, make a decision. God put you in that decision. Listen, I understand there's some times where you need to bounce some things off and hear some things, and I'm not against that, but my position in your life is not controller of every decision you make. You know whose role that is? The Spirit of God. And if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. Follow His voice. Listen to what he says. But can I remind you, he doesn't lead in opposition to his word. So if you're hearing a voice that's going against what the word of God says, then it's not God's voice. Try the spirits to see whether they are of God. 
Discern what the Holy Spirit has for you in your life. How wonderful to look at the one each judge is a shadow of and how he used his position. Unlike Gideon, he's the tabernacle, God's ultimate dwelling place on earth. Yet Jesus resisted the temptation to rule in power over the nations because he did not come to be served, but to serve. Not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He has ransomed us from our own self-honoring reactions to success, our own self-hating responses to failure. He used his position as the only begotten Son of God to give us freedom from needing respect or being crushed by the lack of it. Unlike the ephod, Jesus is the one to whom we rightly should come in worship. What all points us back to Jesus, doesn't it? Can I share with you today the answer is not you trying harder. The answer is not you living better. The answer is not more religion for your life. The answer, my friend, is Jesus Christ. He is the answer. If you need something in your life and you came searching for it, can I tell you, you are looking for someone, not something, and his name is Jesus. And if you found him, Can I tell you this? Don't accept any substitutes. Thou shalt have no other gods before him. Idolatry is present and needs to be repented of and cast off even within the church. And Jesus alone should be praised and worshipped. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.